This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Sandra Smith, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. 60 days until midterms, and things are escalating with ads, debates, and tweets, all part of a fight for those independent-minded voters as both sides battle for power. Whichever party is leading the conversation, um, they really do need to offer people something. And I think that that's what they're going to try to do. I'm Dave Anthony. Sunday marks 21 years since 9-11. So we remember a terror attack people vowed should never be forgotten, talking to the mother of a hero who saved lives that day until he lost his. Our young people, whether they were alive or not for 9-11, have to understand what is out there in the world. It is not all kumbaya. It's, it's not all a happy place. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Today marks 60 days until midterms, and the general landscape has tightened. Polling shows people are evenly split between Democratic and Republican candidates. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez told this podcast this week that in mid-September... We're going to see House Republicans roll out this commitment to America. And I think once that gets rolled out, you're really going to see the House Republicans, not only members, but also candidates circle behind that and really have a uh, unified message on what we're going to do when we're in power. Some races in some swing states are getting more tense. Pennsylvania Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman, the state's lieutenant governor, is ahead of Republican Dr. Oz in the polls, but Oz has been calling Fetterman out for refusing debates after he suffered a stroke. Here's Fetterman struggling at the end of August at a steelworker event. What is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income. Retiring Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey joined Dr. Oz Tuesday at a campaign event in Philadelphia. It's clear that he's being dishonest. He's either not as well as he claims to be, or he's afraid to be called out for the radical policies he supports. It's one or the other. Fetterman has since said he will debate Dr. Oz sometime in October. Fetterman happily campaigned with President Biden, who's since gone on offense with last week's speech in Philadelphia. There's no question the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So with two months left to go, the question is which pitch will work and how much depends on the state or district you live in. There's been such fluctuation in the polls. Which issues are really driving people? Are they driving Democrats or Republicans? Where's the enthusiasm gap? Shannon Bream is the new host of Fox News Sunday. And now that the primaries are almost completely wrapped, you do have these head-to-head matchups and you look at some of the Senate races and see that for Republicans, it's looking much tougher than they had hoped um, to retake the Senate. The House, it seems that the GOP will hold there. The gap appears to be narrowing a bit. But You know, until people get out there in those polls in November and, of course, early voting, um, we just don't know where the dust is going to settle. Yep. 
Uh, on that front, we spoke to Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez um, for this podcast this week. And we talked a bit about how Republicans plan to sort of regain a bit of that momentum that they appear to have lost. And he said the GOP is going to coalesce around this, quote, commitment to America that mm-hmm. they're going to roll out in mid-September. There's been a little bit of buzz, but I guess it's going to get bigger in like a week or so. It's their midterm pitch. And I'm just wondering, what do you think something like that should look like or feel like, especially after President Biden's speech and follow-up tweets he's made, um, really criticizing and going after what he calls MAGA Republicans? Yeah, I think that uh, House Republicans, primarily under the leadership of Kevin McCarthy, are going to launch something that, for those of us old enough to remember Newt Gingrich's contract Mm. with America, and Republicans are now saying they think it's very important to give Americans something to vote for instead of just trying to get them to vote against Democrat Mm -hmm. policies or Democrat candidates. And I think that's important. You know, whichever party is leading the conversation, um, they really do need to offer people something. And I think that that's what they're going to try to do down the da- uh, the home stretch here. They're going to say, all right, here are our principles about the economy, about your family, about foreign policy. And this is what we promised to do for you. So we are, you know, that's been one of the criticisms of Republicans. Sometimes they make a lot of broad sweeping promises. They take power and the people that voted for them expect more than what they end up getting. So I think McCarthy and Republicans are very aware of that. And especially since there's been some wobbling in the polls over the, mm-hmm. you know, abortion issue and some other things. I think they know that they need to get out there and say, these are our four or five core policies. This is what we promise you. We're offering you alternatives from what you have right now. And I think you're going to see a very big push in the next week or so to really try to get that into the bloodstream. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of Senate races that are pretty big on the radar. The Dr. Oz John Fetterman race in Pennsylvania. Things are getting, I guess, more tense there. And some new articles have come out this week about John Fetterman's health. As we all know, he had a stroke. One op-ed that I read said that Dr. Oz is handling the criticism in a childish way. This was this op-ed, this author, but then pivoted and said Fetterman really does need to get on the debate stage or be more forthcoming about his health struggles, time frame on recovery. We know the Pennsylvania Senate race is one that people are really closely watching. It's mm-hmm. a, it's considered, you know, the balance of power is 50-50 right now. So what's your take on some of the takes on John Fetterman? So it's so interesting. It's very difficult. I mean, anybody who's come back from something that is that challenging physically knows it takes time. And it seems that the word from his doctors has continually been, listen, if he sticks with the protocol and the healthy lifestyle that we've discussed with him, he's eventually going to be fine. But when you're voting right now for something that is a six-year commitment, people want to hear and see him. He says, I'm out there. I'm meeting with Pennsylvanians. I'm in these local events and people are seeing me. Well, some of the videos coming out from some of those events make people a little bit concerned about where he is in this recovery process, even if he's eventually going to get back to 100%. So there's this big debate over the debates. Will they have them? Um, Both these candidates have their pluses and minuses for sure in Pennsylvania. And one of the things the Fetterman camp continues to harp on is that, you know, Oz is sort of a carpetbagger and that he's um, not really connected to the people of Pennsylvania, that he's out of touch. And it's really tricky because you've got a medical doctor who is running and saying, listen, I understand the the fallout from a stroke and what that entails and the demands of being a senator. And so, gosh, I think it's so tricky for both of these candidates. It's one of those really unusual things that happen right in the middle of the heart of these campaigns. And tough to navigate. But as you said, there have been op-eds out there and not from right-leaning us supporting kind of organizations now saying, okay, we've got some serious questions that 
Fetterman, the candidate, needs to answer. Let's talk about New Hampshire briefly. That's another one that's considered, um, you know, key to the balance of power in the Senate. We know Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan is considered one of the most vulnerable senators running. A lot of money in this race. And on Tuesday, we're going to find out who she will face among Republicans. Brigadier General Don Bulldog, a more Trumpy candidate, if you will, or State Senator Chuck Morse. He's, um, I guess, considered the more moderate. New Hampshire leans blue. It might be purplish, but it leans blue. Mm-hmm. And I, I want your thoughts. It's sort of reminding me a bit of, about how the analysts are now saying like Maryland and Massachusetts governor's races are now lean Democratic because the more Trumpian candidate is the Republican nominee. If Republicans don't do well with the candidates they pick, do they shift or do you just say, look, these are northeast states that we're talking about here. They're more blue anyway. Gosh, you know, so much nuance to races like this. And the president, former president, will tout the success that he's had. And we track how he does with his endorsements. They're very successful in the primaries. But the real test is going to be whether you get someone across the finish line in the general. And that's where there's been so much you know, speculation and criticism of, you know, the former president and of Republicans and are they divided and is MAGA running the show or the more moderates running the show. But you do have to think specifically about each of these states, each of these races, they have their own personality and voters Mm -hmm. who have their own sensibilities. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in this primary in New Hampshire, um, because, you know, if the former president can keep going around racking up endorsement wins in the primaries, um, there are a lot of folks saying, if you don't win in the general, what's the point? And that's going to be one of those very tricky races in New Hampshire, because like you said, definitely doesn't lean red. It's purple at best for Republicans and certainly leans blue. And that means the general, the candidate that this GOP puts up makes all of the difference. Yeah. Let's talk about Trump. He had a week. <laughs> You've seen He's had some, some the, weeks. <laughs> yeah. You've seen some of the criticism, right? A, a Trump appointed judge, a federal judge allowing a special master to help weed through all the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago. Some have said, you know, that's going to slow things down, namely the DOJ attorneys, that it's not needed and that it assumes the DOJ can't do the job or wasn't maybe totally justified here. Just with uh, your legal eagle, right? You've covered Supreme Court, you know, legal cases. Where are your thoughts about where this is going? I guess maybe in the in the short term. I'll be surprised if DOJ doesn't appeal that ruling from the judge down in South Florida appointing the special master. Um, I would expect them to do that. Listen, if they're not successful on that point, it's really going to slow down what the DOJ is doing with respect to investigating the former president. It's not that they can't continue with the investigation, but they can't use the documents that they took from Mar-a-Lago as a basis for any of that investigation, as long as there's a special master looking through those materials. Both sides are supposed to cough up to the judge their recommendations for a special master. Hard to believe they would agree on anything, but the judge will have to pick someone. Those recommendations from both sides are to be in by Friday. So I I will be very surprised if DOJ doesn't appeal that decision. So all of this is just kind of delaying what's eventually going to happen. You know, we just don't know what we don't know yet in this case. Yeah, Marco Rubio was on Fox News Channel, and he was talking after the Washington Post article came out about the material of like the highest sensitivity about a foreign country's nuclear program being kept at Mar-a-Lago. He said that the leaking of that kind of information that can't really be refuted is a huge problem, and it's just political to mm-hmm. influence the narrative. Um, what do you make of that? Does, does he have a point? Like, if you're not worried about your case, do you even leak? Well, and that's a tricky thing is that the DOJ has been in court arguing against releasing information in this case. And that, of course, it ties the hands of the Trump legal team. There's only so much they can do without full exposure to this information. And like you said, when these leaks come out 
it's very hard for them to respond to that in any substantive way right. because this is, you know, people speaking off the record on the condition of anonymity, people who know, people familiar with the investigation. It's a real conflict that they need to get a handle on. And, and critics left, right, and center are saying that about, you know, DOJ, either stop the leaks or open up and be more transparent about what you have. And finally, um, Shannon, preview your show. What's happening? We kind of had a framework in place. And now um, with the unfortunate news about the queen, um, we're certainly looking to add voices, thinking about the decades of service that she has given, how she really has been so fundamental to um, really the stability of Western society at some points. Um, you think about through wars and assassinations and popes and presidents and prime ministers. I mean, this queen has been there as a steady voice, a steady hand. Um, there's enormous love um, for her and the way she devoted herself to her country selflessly for decades. So we're looking at adding some guests uh, to our show that will um, be able to tell us more about her and really give her role in history uh, a proper context and perspective. Um, we are also going to talk with uh, Senator Tim Scott. He is sort of out there as now the voice of the Republican Party on a number of big issues from police reform to now this abortion debate. His home state of South Carolina is grappling with their state laws and how they're going to handle that. And we will have full representation from the Democrats, from the left side. They'll always have a voice at the table. So we're working with the White House. We hope to have an exciting announcement on a guest from the White House very shortly, but certainly a number of lawmakers and, and Democratic candidates that we're working with this week, too. And as soon as we have that voice, we'll announce it. And it is 9-11. And of, of course, we're going to memorialize and commemorate, as we always do each year as Americans, the people we lost that day, the great sacrifices of heroes who ran into danger that day. And we've got former New York Yankees Andy Pettit with us, which I think is going to be really interesting. Nice. Because if you'll remember, he was in the World Series when President Bush, 43, threw out that pitch. And the whole country at that moment was united cheering for him as the person who was leading us as commander-in-chief through those dark, dark days. Andy was with him that day. And we want to talk to him about what that day was like, how sports can bring Americans together. Are we losing the ability to do that? Are sports getting too politicized? So we thought that would be kind of a unique take on the day. So we look forward to talking to Andy, too. Love it. Shannon Bream, thank you so much for your time. You got it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Paul Batura with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. There will be moments of silence on Sunday, and bells will be rung, names will be read, remembering 9 11 21 years later. Be advised from our location now, I see heavy smoke coming from the building of the World Trade Center. America was under attack that day. We saw a shadow, it looked like a plane. Next thing we know, it was boom, boom, and the floor started shaking. And then we saw debris fall down, and next thing we know, we had to get out of the building. Planes hijacked by terrorists crashed into both Twin Towers in New York City, and those buildings then collapsed. 
Washington also got hit. We had an aircraft intentionally fly into the Pentagon. A half hour after that, a plane believed headed to a D.C. target crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The only thing you could see was a big gouge in the earth and some broken trees. After passengers who'd learned about the other planes being flown into buildings fought back against the hijackers on Flight 93. In the end, nearly 3,000 people were killed, murdered by the 19 also dead terrorists. Many other lives were saved that day by first responders, heroes who didn't survive. In 2014, a 9-11 Memorial Museum opened in New York City full of tributes to those heroes. And President Obama at the dedication ceremony spoke about one of them. They didn't know his name. They didn't know where he came from. But they knew their lives had been saved by the man in the red bandana. That man was Wells Crowther who worked in one of the Twin Towers as a stock trader. Wells was not only an equities trader, he was a fully trained volunteer firefighter. Allison Crowther is his mother, who proudly tells us his story. Wells actually, we learned, was preparing to go over to help out at the scene at the first tower, the North Tower, the first to be hit. And, you know, at that point, I think everyone was thinking it was an accident or whatever. But then, of course... There was a 17-minute interval in between the first plane hitting the North Tower and then the South Tower, which me and millions of others, we watched on live television, you know, that the plane actually hit on live TV, which was a, you know, complete and utter shock. He's actually in the building. So you then heard from him, right, a short time later? So it was after his tower was hit. And he said, you know, Mom, it's Wells. I, I want you to know I'm okay. I was at work at the time in my office just starting to hear about this. I did not hear my phone ring. I, you know, communications were totally disrupted that day. Yeah. But at least we were able to leave a message. Thank God we have his voice recorded. The story of what he did was unknown to you. You just didn't hear from him anymore that day, correct? And I'm certain that over as the hours built... When the tower went down, you had a sense of dread at that point. Yeah, as soon as I heard um, that this, this, the tower had collapsed, I knew. Oh, you know, wow. I, in my heart of hearts, I just knew Wells was gone. So I called my husband sobbing, and he said, don't, don't think that, don't say that. He could have gotten out. I said, how is that even possible? Meanwhile, what went on in between, we knew nothing for months Our family needed a memorial service or something. We knew he wasn't coming back. So many families are still left with that, you know, nothing, which is a terrible place to be. So we had a memorial service two weeks after he was, uh, after 9-11. It wasn't until March 2002, more than six months after the South Tower collapsed, when crews finally found Wells Crowther's body alongside the South Tower incident commander and other first responders. But the Crowther family still had no idea about all the lives Wells saved before losing his. Until May. I kept always reading, looking, watching the documentaries, anything I could. I was trying to, because something was driving me, a mother's instinct, who knows, to keep looking for my child, for my son. And so my husband couldn't read anything or look at anything. He, he just was so bereft. 
9-11 killed my husband as surely as it killed Wells. It just took a lot longer. So uh, Memorial Weekend of 2002 is when the big article in the New York Times came out called Fighting to Live as the Towers Died. And uh, my husband said, here, you may want to see this. He couldn't even look at it. So I took the paper and I started reading it. I remember saying to myself, if I'm ever going to see anything about Wells, it's going to be here. So I started reading this article and sure enough, there it was. Two of the witnesses, Ling Young and Judy Ween, uh, made references to this mysterious man wearing red bandana, calling out, you know, with a fire extinguisher, putting out fires, saying there are people who you can help. There are those you cannot help. Only help those that you can help get up and follow me now. So he was basically said this person was basically setting up a triage. So I said, oh, my God, Wells, I found you. Why? When, when you see the red bandana and you read that, why does it jump out at you? It's uh, because when Wells was a small boy, we were getting dressed for church. And we was wearing a little suit. We always dressed for church. Wells said to his father, whom he emulated, Daddy, can I have a white handkerchief for my pocket like you have? Hmm. Wells was probably about seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. And so my husband said, sure, Wells. And he went and pulled out a, a white handkerchief. And then he said, I don't know why I did, but I just pulled out a, a bandana. I pulled out a red bandana. So uh, he folded up the white handkerchief, put it in Wells's breast pocket of his suit jacket and said, now, Wells, this handkerchief, that's for show. Don't touch it. Just leave it right there. Here's a bandana. That's for blow, to blow your nose, for missing jobs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so... That's how it started. And from then on, Wells always carried a bandana with him, and, and most of them were red. So he always had this red bandana. He had, I assume, that he had it in his office. Yes, he did. And in fact, one of his co-workers said, Wells, why do you always have that red bandana with you? And Wells picked it up and held it up and turned to her and said, with this red bandana, I'm going to change the world. That New York Times report was titled, Fighting to Live as the Towers Died, detailing how only a small group who were above the plane's impact made it out alive. So she reached out to two of those quoted, Ling Young and Judy Ween, who was the first one to respond, telling Allison. There were about 18 survivors of the, of the Sky Lobby, and they'd all stayed in touch at, with a group chat since that happened. So she reached out to Ling Young and Ling responded, I sent photographs of Wells to them and they identified him. Wow. And they, yeah, and Wells was, and, and, and they think that Wells is the reason they were alive. I mean, he, he saved them all. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's been confirmed. He saved 12 people at least out of there were about 200 people in the sky lobby waiting for elevators when the plane was hit. Of those, there were only eight, well, actually 19 survivors, but one died soon thereafter. So only really 18 survivors. And of those 18, Wells saved 12 of them. So Lin Young was the first Wells took down. And that's, then there was a woman he carried over his shoulder with the group Lin Young was with. Oh, and Wells had said to Lin, can, when they were up on the 70th floor, can you carry a fire extinguisher? We may need it going down. And she said, yes, she was burned over 40% of her body, but wow. God bless her. Jeez. She's such a trooper. Wow. So she carried the fire extinguisher. Wells carried the woman over his shoulder and other people Ling was with, and down they went. At about the 61st floor, the uh, air was clear, lights were on, 
uh, Wells put the woman down and said, you have to go on from here. I, there are other people I have to go. I have to go back up and help others. Ling told me that she said to this woman he was carrying, come on, I, we have to go now. And the woman said, I can't. I'm too weak. I can't go. So she never survived. Okay. But but Ling and the other people did. And then he went back up. And of course, the yes. building collapsed and, and he was gone. Yeah, well, he did go back up, but he got all the way back down because he was found with Donald Burns, the incident commander with the FDNY and his men. And what we learned later through FDNY connections was that that group was planning to go back up and cut people out of elevators and do whatever and when the tower collapsed. So Wells did get all the way down to ground level. But he wasn't but he, he wasn't going to stop trying to help. Oh, no, he was never going to stop. This was Wells. He would do whatever it takes and he would never stop. If he survived the collapse, he'd be down there for months trying to help. So that was Wells. He just was very tenacious. And he has since become one of the most famous of all, the 9-11 heroes. There's been a documentary and books about the man in the red bandana, and his family has built upon his legacy with the Wells Remy Crowther Charitable Trust that hands out scholarships and awards. There's also the Red Bandana Project that fosters leadership teaching programs at schools nationwide. And at Wells' alma maters, Nyack High School in New York and Boston College, He's honored in red bandana-themed sporting events, including a football game tonight in Nyack. It's incredible. It just means the world to us. You know, one of the very horrible feelings I had when Wells was first lost was, well, is that it? I mean, what happens to Wells now? Does he just disappear off you know, out of people's minds? Or he, he was such a wonderful person. It was just such a blow and so terrible to think that his life had been extinguished. And yet when this goes on and students still to this day, they learn his story, they're inspired by him. He's very much alive in the hearts and souls of these young people. And that to me is just an incredible thing. His sister Honor wrote a children's book for very young children called The Man in the Red Bandana. And that's been selling wildly also for very young children. So a lot of these Incredible things have happened. You know, you talk about this, but it's 21 years now. All of the students who are going to be at these games, to them, they weren't alive for it. If you're 30 and under, 9-11 is a very different experience for the, you know, versus us who are adults watching it on TV and, and, and all the aftermath and everything about it. Do you think that the stories are still helping people not forget? I hope the stories are keeping it alive. It's really very important piece of our history. It's one of the most devastating things probably that's ever happened to have civilians attacked at this level. Our young people, whether they were alive or not for 9-11, have to understand what is out there in the world. It is not all kumbaya. It's, it's not all a happy place. But your son's story and the story you continue to tell, at least it helps to give people uh, the hope that there is, there's, there's good in us. That's the power of Wells' story, that it gives a touchable example. This was not a rock star. This was not a superhero. This was not a make-believe figure. His example was one of humanity and love and courage, fearlessness, caring for others and facing horrible situations undeterred to help other people. 
And that's how we can change the world. Allison Crowther, the mother of Wells Crowther, one of the 9-11 heroes known as the man in the red bandana. We thank you for your time. We offer our condolences. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Dave. One final note. The conversation I had with Allison Crowther was longer than we could include in today's rundown. On Sunday, when we mark 21 years since 9-11, we will include the entire conversation in our Fox News Rundown Extra. Please come back, check it out on Sunday. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. What's on your mind? The death of Queen Elizabeth II drops the curtain on the longest reigning monarch in world history. At just over 70 years on the throne, Elizabeth's remarkable tenure at Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace spans 13 United States presidencies dating back to Dwight Eisenhower. But the Queen's reign wasn't just notable for its sheer length and record number of days in power. It was notable for how she spent those years and how many lives she touched throughout 96 years of her life. She was born Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. She was known as a young girl with beautiful handwriting who spelled well, loved history, enjoyed music, and even spoke fluent French. But lest you think she was perfect, she apparently struggled with arithmetic. Elizabeth was in Kenya in February 1952 when her father, King George VI, died. Just like that, she was queen. After a period of mourning and preparation, she was coronated in June of 1953. As Queen of England, Elizabeth represented the monarch and her kingdom through good times and bad. She was a consoler and a cheerleader. She served as a bridge between an emerging post-World War II Europe and a tumultuous, fast-changing world. But beyond being drawn to the pomp and the pageantry, beyond the intrigue with the richness of royalty, what was it that drew so many of us to the Queen and her extended brood? I think at the center of it all is our deep and abiding desire for family and stability. Queen Elizabeth represented that. Yes, there was the dysfunction, and sometimes it made unfortunate headlines. But more often than not, the Queen's reign ran like a train traveling on time through a beautiful, picturesque countryside. She was reliable, dependable. She also appeared unflappable and always firmly in command. We all intrinsically want that. We want to be loved and we want someone to love. We're drawn to the security of loving parents, a devoted spouse, children who mean everything to us, and hopefully we mean everything to them. So what was the Queen's secret? How did she pull it off? I mean, 70 years. It really wasn't a secret at all. In message after message, usually at Christmas, she said her personal faith in Jesus Christ was, quote, the anchor in her life. She said in 2014, quote, Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love, end quote. Whether you're the Queen of England or living in Queens, New York, it's usually the little things that make the biggest difference. The very best way to honor the memory of Queen Elizabeth II's long and storied life is to love the people God has placed in your life and on your path. 
God saved the queen for 70 years, and now, because of her faith in him, she lives on with him in a world without end. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.